confirmed. Uh, I, I hope that maybe you might have some other people in mind that might uh, want to join us next week for this uh, series, and uh, feel free to invite them to come. You know, each message doesn't build on itself, they, they kind of stand alone, so it, it, it wouldn't be uh, uncomfortable for them, for them to show up kind of in the middle. Um, we're going to be looking at seven key areas in our lives, and how God wants to grow us in, in all of those areas. We're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at our spiritual health. We're going to be looking at physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, our relational health. We're going to be looking at our financial health, and, and then finally our vocational health. Um, are we healthy in the job that we're in? Uh, do, we have, do we have purpose? Do we have God's vision for that? And God's goal is that we would grow. God's goal for you and for me isn't that we would just come to church and that we would just sort of get some information and then go on and sort of do our own thing for the rest of the week and then come back the next Sunday and get some more information. God wants to grow you. He wants to transform you. Uh, in fact, um, how does this happen? How does God do this? Look up here on the screen at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is the key verse for the series. And it says this, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Now, there's two things in there. There's, there's two responsibilities. There's God's part, and then there's our part in that. Well, what is God's part? God's part is the transformation part. Only God can transform you and me. Only God can do the work of changing us. In fact, the Greek word for transform there is the verse for metamorpho. Just like the caterpillar in and of itself can't change itself into a butterfly, something else changes that caterpillar into that. A a caterpillar doesn't think one day, hmm, you know what? I don't like crawling around on the ground. I want to fly. So he cocoons himself up and makes himself change. No, that's not what happens. Ultimately, God does that. God has created that to occur in that way. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to transform us. And we need to surrender to this power of God. That's God's part. Our part is this in this transformation process. At the end of that verse, it says, changing our thinking to a whole new way of thinking. It, it, it's saying this, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. In, in other words, the key to transformation starts not with our actions, not with our behavior, but really with our thoughts, how we think about and what we think about something. You know, our behavior throughout the course of a week, um, as it relates to our faith in God and our perception of him, what we think about him determines whether we trust him in a situation or not. It's not our actions that do that. It's, it's, it's our thinking. And, and we need to, in, in order for our life to change, we need to change the way that we think. Everything about you matters. Everything about you matters. And, and, and it flows out of what happens in your mind. This message didn't originate with Oprah or Dr. Phil, or Dale Carnegie, or Anthony Robbins, it originated with God. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. We become what we think about. Long before that familiar line found its way into Psychology 101 or was hyped at business sales meetings, the Bible said it. How we think, that's what we become. 
You know, I think it was probably in junior high when I first heard that message for the first time. You know, what you think about all day long, that's what you're become. And it terrified me. I thought, I don't want to be a girl. You know, as we go through each of these seven areas, we're going to talk about the transformation of the way we think, of the way we think. Now let's jump jump right in and let's talk about our spiritual health. We're we're going to start with that because the further away we get from God, the more trouble we're going to have in our life. The, the, The more distance between us and God, it seems like the more we struggle with life. The harder it is, the sadder we become. The, the more we feel like we're banging our head against a wall, we get stressed more. More things go wrong because we're not following God's plan for our life. On the other hand, the closer we get to God, the more our lives are going to be transformed. Is this not true in your life? I, I think you would say absolutely that's true in my life. I, I think we all want to get closer to God. I think that's why you're here today. But the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. In other words, we're like sheep. I don't like that illustration. I don't like to be compared to a sheep, but that's exactly what God does over and over and over and over again. We are like sheep, and and we tend to, like those sheep, drift away. We don't stay close to God. Now, you don't have to teach a sheep to get out of the pasture. They do it on their own. And, and, and the, the crazy, dumb thing is about a sheep is you got one sheep that, that, that acts like he knows what he's doing and all the rest just follow him. And they all get out or they all drift away or they all run off a cliff. I mean, you would think that at least one of them would pause for a moment and think to himself, you know, Harry and and Louise just went off that cliff. Maybe I should think about this for a little bit. They didn't come back. But oh no, they don't think to do that. Nope, they think, oh, sounds like a great idea to me. I'll give it a try. Doesn't sound like a bad idea. Sheep are dumb. I mean, I, I raised sheep, right? I, a sheep does not need a reason to die. They just do. We are nothing like that, are we? Nothing like that. The Bible says all we, you and me, like sheep, tend to go astray. We don't tend to stay close to God And when people feel this kind of attachment from God, the conversation often goes like this. They could be asked this question. Was was there a time when you just slammed the door on God and you thumbed your nose at him and you said, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore? Is that how it happened that you wound up feeling far from God? And nine out of ten times, people would probably say, you know, that's really not how it happened at all. I just drifted. I got distracted. You know, it happened a little bit at a time, almost non-intentionally, but, but here I am further from God than I ever thought I would be. They stopped going to church. They didn't read their Bibles. They didn't experience God's presence. And, and the crazy thing is, we can tell when that happens, but somehow we have convinced ourselves that it's okay. 
It's okay. And then the conversation continues. Well, if you were to ask that person, well, how do you feel about that? Oftentimes, I see it on Facebook all the time. They say, you know, I miss it. I really wish I felt closer to God than I, than I do right now. I, I miss having a sense of God being with me throughout the day. I miss the sense of purpose and meaning that God brings to my life. There, there is a lot I miss. And the wheels continue to turn in that person's head. And, and they're really wondering if, if it's possible that, that, that they could ever get close to God again. Would, would God even have me back after I have drifted away and lost my mooring? Could I, after so many years and having drifted so far away, could I ever come back to God? Satan would like to tell you no. Absolutely not. Forget it. And In fact, those people at that church, they wouldn't treat you very nice if they knew how you were acting and, and that, that you were closing yourself out to God if you even showed up. But fortunately, we have a story in the Bible about this. Jesus told it. It's one of the most famous and honestly one of the most heartwarming stories that Jesus ever told. It's found in Luke chapter 15. If you would turn with me, uh, Luke 15 will not be on the screen. I would like you to look that up in your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one underneath the seat in front of you. Um, Yell at a neighbor across the way, hey, throw me a Bible or Could you please bring me that Bible, maybe would be a better way to phrase it. Luke chapter 15, it's page 1035 in those Bibles that are underneath the seats. And we're going to look at the story of the prodigal son. uh, Oftentimes referred to as the story of the loving father. Because I think it's more about the father, really, than it is about the son when we get to the end. And we're going to see four principles in this on how transformation in our spiritual life occurs. Let's begin reading in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. This kid goes to his dad and says, essentially, since you're not dead yet, I wish you were, but since you're not, give me my half, give me my share. Give me your money now. So it goes on. He, the father, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything. It says he lived wildly. He blows all of the money. Everything. Another translation translated, it, he lives riotously. He spent, it, he spent all of that money on wine, women, and song, and I think we all know that he didn't do a lot of singing. He just spent all the money and he lived stupidly. That's what he did. After it continues in verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, And he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Isn't that an amazing story? I mean, it, it's the story of how every one of us tends to wander away. We get distracted and busy in life and we find ourselves far away from God. And our Creator, our Father who made us, longs for us to return. You know, the Father, the Father was only able to run out and meet Him because He saw Him coming from a distance. I bet He got, I bet every chance He got during the day, He looked to see if His Son could be in the distance. He, some of you parents know what that feels like. You can't wait till your son or your daughter returns to home or to the Lord. There's four things that we learn from this story about how to get close to God, how to get back. I don't know where you are today. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're way, way, way. Maybe it, you're, you're not even here of your own volition. You were sort of brought here by somebody in the family. Maybe that's you here this morning. Or maybe you've just been distant for a week or a few months. Maybe you are at a point where you say, I really don't care about God anymore. How do I get back to God? Here, here's the four things. The first thing, the first thing is this. We got to get fed up with our life. Get fed up with your life. With your circumstances. With the way that you've been living. You know, have you ever gotten just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Well, sometimes that's a good place to be. Because in those places, sometimes we make decisions. And we see in, in the story that Jesus told today, the decision that should be made. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think, man, I am just depressed. I'm stressed. I'm anxious. My life is just crazy right now. I'm overworked. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm not busy enough. I don't even like myself. I don't like the life I'm living. And I can tell you that nothing will happen until you change your mind and make a decision. Because the world likes you just where, that, where you are. Spinning plates and spinning plates and spinning your wheels. Spinning in life. Nothing's going to happen in this seven, seven weeks until you get dissatisfied where you're at spiritually, where you're at physically, where you're at financially, relationally, emotionally, and vocationally. And if you're sitting here thinking, you know what, everything's fine. I don't need to change anything in my life. Then I guess you get a hall pass for the next seven weeks because nothing's going to happen in your life if that's the attitude that you have, if that's what you're thinking, you've got to get desperate or anxious enough to want a change. 
Nothing happens until we get fed up. Now, I want to say a couple things here that, about this kind of closed off to the whole idea of God thing. Maybe that's you here this morning. And, and even right now, you're going, well, I'm here, but this transformed thing, this God thing, i kind of cold to it. Well, two things about that. First, I don't know anyone in this church. Now, there, there may be a person or two. But I don't know anyone in this church who would judge you because you're closed off to God. I believe that North Hills is the kind of church that is filled with people, most of us, myself included, who remember a time in our life when we were at one time closed off to God. And maybe somebody was gracious with us and patient with us and prayed with us. As a church, I would pray that that's where all of us are. That that when we encounter somebody that's closed off to God, that we would just trust the Lord to transform them and be available to share with them. Maybe that's you here this morning. I want you to know that there's a pretty good understanding heart here about what it's like to be closed off to God in our life. I, for one, am thrilled to death if that's you, that you're here. The second thing is this. Uh, It's that the Bible says that when your inner world changes, you know, when when your pain gets high enough or your loneliness gets deep enough or when the fear and uncertainty of this world are strong enough, when, when all of these other forms of distraction in our life run their course, that we will, I believe, and I've seen it over and over and over again, get fed up. We'll get to the bottom of the barrel looking up going, you know what? This isn't good. We recognized how much we need God You know, when you get there and you get fed up, you need to know that you can surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and the Bible says that you will be saved. And at that moment in time in your life is when when your eternal life begins. And, And God will transform more of your life and more of your life and more of your life into life. Obviously, that doesn't mean hard things don't happen. I'm not saying that for sure. Look at verse 13. It says, the kid wasted it all. He had nothing left. Nothing left. I'm assuming that Jesus is is telling this to a Jewish community, and this is probably a Jewish kid that he's telling this about, and he was willing to feed pigs and, and long for what the pigs were eating. Pretty sure that if a pig isn't kosher, what they eat isn't kosher either. He's desperate. He's starving. He's hungry for change. Are you there yet? In verse 17, it says, He finally came to his senses. How many of us who have, how many of you who have had wayward children when they finally came home and they finally said, Dad or Mom, I, I, I desperately need you, I desperately want you in your life? How many of you would first say, Well, it's about time, man, you big screw up? No. That's not what you would say. This is the conclusion that this young man finally came to. 
In Jeremiah 29, 13, God says this, you'll find me when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else. Let's come to our senses. Let's get fed up with where our life is today. And let's return to the Father. So number two is this. We need to own up to our sin. I need to own up to my sin. That's the second thing that this young kid did. He owned up to his sin. He came to his senses. He goes, this is nuts. This is nonsense. This is when he woke up. To live without God is insane. And you don't have to do it. It just doesn't make sense to me why you would choose that. To live without the creator who gave you life is is not logical. It, It doesn't make sense. When he came to his senses, he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And he repeated that over and over and over and over. Nothing is going to happen until we come to that point. Where we just own up to the fact that we have not been living God's way. That we've been living our own way. We've been doing our own thing. I've been doing what I think best. When he came to his senses, he said, I have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. That's all of us in this room. We have all done things and we need to own up to the fact that we have done things that we should not do. We have failed at things that we ought to do and we have a hard time facing up to it sometimes. We would rather just sort of ignore it or shove it under the rug. But if we would look around in our life, we would notice that we are surrounded by deeply flawed people. You say, wait a minute, don't put me in that category. I put myself in that category. Here's why. The word sin is an old archery term. It means missing the mark. In in fact, if, if in an archery competition, the archer doesn't hit the target, the bullseye, the distance between that bullseye and his arrow is called a sin. It doesn't matter if it's an inch or he missed the the whole target. It's a sin. It literally means to miss the mark. And when it comes to living life the way God intended all of us, we are all missers of the mark. Every one of us. Doesn't matter how far we miss. The truth is nobody hits the bullseye. Every time. And sin includes the wrong things that we do. And I believe that it includes the right things that God has given us to do that we say no to him about doing. You know, every time that I could speak truth but I shrink back. Or every time that that I hoard what I ought to share. Or every time that I see poverty or injustice or discrimination and I know I ought to act but I refuse to, I say, forget it. I'm too busy. I'm not going to do that. 
Every time I could forgive someone, but I choose to resent them instead is a sin. We sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says this, Your sins have separated you from God and have hidden his face from you. Have you ever prayed and felt like God was a million miles away? I have a friend who always says this. He says, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? It wasn't God. It wasn't God. So if you feel apart, if you feel far from God, you're the one who has moved. Our sins separate us from God. Now, this is the first week in the transformed groups, and we have well over 60 people that have signed up and are in small groups. I'm very excited about that. I wish it was 260. But we're going to be studying seven habits in our small groups for spiritual health, for growth. And I want to give you two more because I don't think seven is enough. Two more. One is this. The first is this. Develop the habit of a regular spiritual checkup. Why does the track coach have a stopwatch? So he can keep track and check times to see if they're making progress or if they need to work a little harder or if they need to run a different race. If I was ever clocked at a mile, he would say, "Uh, nope, we need to find a different race for you. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, test yourself to make sure you're solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourself regular checkups. If you fail the test, do something about it, the message translation says. A regular checkup. Do it today. Do it this week. I think this would be a great goal. If you have a relative and they're not feeling well, and you say to them, you know, maybe you should go to a doctor and have them check you out. When was the last time you had a checkup? And they say, oh, I never do checkups. Doctor might find something wrong. What would your response to them be? What if it's something that could be treated? Why would you ignore? Because ignoring it doesn't fix it. Doesn't give you the opportunity to heal. And ignoring sin and things in our life removes the potential. We need to have a regular spiritual checkup. Here's some things really quick. This is what I would suggest. Okay, I would suggest that you get alone, find a quiet place. And you'll have to set some time. In fact, and here's the thing, you got to be fed up to say, you know what, I'm going to do this because you're going to go home, you're going you're gonna to look at your cell phone before you even get out of this room. You're going to check and see how your favorite player is doing in the Masters. Or, or you're going to see how badly the Rockies got beat today. Man, it's the beginning of the season and they're getting blown out already. And you're going to look at your schedule and go, there's no time. You're going to have to say, I'm going to make the time this week. And, and it's going to be 30 minutes or an hour or whatever, and I'm going to go to my favorite park bench or, or find a favorite park bench. 
Find a favorite spot by the river. Take a, 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 a folding chair or a lawn, whatever those things are called, a lawn chair with you. And just sit there quietly. Find a quiet space. Go there, be alone. Grab a pen and a notepad. You might want a Bible and some Kleenex too. Because if you allow God to speak into your life, he will. He will. Take your time. Don't rush it. If you have never done this before or you haven't done this in a long time, trust me, it will be hard. First of all, everything that you're supposed to do later that day is going to jump in your mind and you're going to start thinking about it. And that, and that, that app game that you're obsessed with, it's going to start popping in your head and you're going to want to pull that. Leave the cell phone at home. In fact, I read one time that, that when you're trying to do a quiet time and you've got, uh, take a notebook and a pen and if something pops into your head that you think you might forget, write it down and then forget it and then look at it later to try and clear your head because all of these birds are going to try and fly into your space. I guarantee you Satan doesn't want you to spend time alone with God. Sit down and say this. All right, Lord, I'm here. I'm here. This time is yours. Speak to me. Talk to me, God. Show me what's wrong with me. What am I guilty of? Is there something in my life? Um, King David said, search my heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. What am I guilty of? What, what is it in my life that needs changing? What are my faults? What are my sins? What is keeping me from feeling close to you? And, and I think and believe that the more that we do this, the more that time and the more times we do this, that our prayers will go from, Lord, why am I so distant from you to, oh God, it's so good to be here with you in your presence. And then write things down. Does God point something out in your life that's wrong? I mean, if you, if you get to the end of an hour and, and you haven't thought of anything to write down and you're like, well, well, must be good. You're delusional. <laughs> I mean, 1 John 1, 8 clears that up. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you write down the truth about you and you do it with fearless honesty and I would say detail. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, because Jesus said that uh, you say, you know, I haven't committed adultery. And Jesus said, well, I say if you look on another woman lustfully, you've created adultery, you've committed adultery in your heart. And it's easy for a man to sit down and say, oh, Lord, please forgive me of, of my lustfulness and, and uh, of adultery. It's another thing to say, Lord, you remember yesterday when I was sitting in that chair and that woman walked by and I took a glance and I took another one and then I... I think it's important that we be detailed when we are coming before the Lord and writing things down, owning up to our faults. Don't rationalize. Don't say, oh, it was a long, long time ago. Ah, that was just a phase. I was in high school. I was in college. It's no big deal. No, God doesn't view sin that way. He doesn't just sweep it under a rug. He paid the price for that. It was very costly to him. We need to own up to it. Don't minimize it. Don't fall in the trap of blaming other people. 
I heard about a guy who was wearing his wedding ring on his index finger, and a guy said to him, hey, you've got your ring on the wrong finger, and he said, yeah, because I'm married to the wrong woman. I wonder if it ever crossed his mind that that he just might be the wrong kind of spouse. But hey, it's, it's their fault, we often think. Well, there are things that may be. But you can't control that and you can't change them. Only God with their cooperation can change and transform their life. But this spiritual checkup isn't about them, it's about you and me. We have to come to grips with our own stuff, not try and put the blame off on other people. So do a regular spiritual checkup. Then you look at that list and you say, yep, that's the truth about me. No more game playing. That is the truth. And then here's the third step in being close to God. We offer up ourself. I offer up myself. I offer up my life, my total being, this is the third thing that this young guy did. Look at verse 12. It, you know, the, 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 the son drifted away saying, give me my share of the inheritance. And then in Luke 15, 19, it says he comes back. He returns to the father saying, make me your hired servant. He leaves saying, give me, and he returns saying, make me. I offer up myself. This is transformation. When a heart moves from self-centeredness to God-centeredness, that is the greatest transformation of all. And trust me, it's not an overnight thing. I wish it was. God is still working on me. He's, for my entire life, he's going to have to work on me. And I suspect you too. It's never instant. But, but there is a decision that starts the process. When I say, I'm fed up. And when I own up to my sin. And I offer up my whole life. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's important to note the father's response. Look at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. As you sit here today and you think, I'm guilty of this, I'm guilty of this, I'm guilty of this, you need to recognize that when you come to the father, that he is throwing his arms around you. And says, oh son, oh daughter, it's good to see you back. In fact, in verse 22 it says, The father says to his servants, with seemingly out any thought, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Notice he didn't wait for the son to come home. While, while he was still distant, he ran out. He grabbed him, and then he threw a party. And we're not talking about it today, but the other brother is just like, are you kidding me? 
This is so not fair. I stayed here. I did this. I did that. Comparing himself to other people, we cannot do that. God gives gifts to whom he wants to give gifts. And this loving father completely receives and forgives his son. In fact, he doesn't just forgive him and punish him. He throws a party and a celebration. The moment that you say, God, I'm tired of living the way I've been living, I'm tired, God will run out and he will meet you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The fourth step in transformation is to lift up my praise. We just say, thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. That, thank you that you never left me. You didn't slam the door in my face. For your goodness, we lift up our praise. Luke chapter 15, the father says, we're going to celebrate with a feast, eating and drinking. My son was lost, but now he is found, so let the party begin. And there was great rejoicing. Psalm 68, 4 says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him. His name is the Lord. Psalm 13, 6 says, I will sing to the Lord because he has been so good to me. I said earlier that I was going to give you two habits. Here's the second habit. I want you to intentionally start singing in church. Maybe you're one of those people that says, you know, I only come for the sermon. I only come for the teaching. And, you know, honestly, um, it's, a, it's a gift to everybody that sits around me that I don't sing because I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Or... or Maybe you think that you're a prison singer. You're always behind a few bars and you never have the right key. And I know you've heard this before, but the Bible says to make a joyful noise. Say anything about melody. Of course we like beautiful music, but you know what? It's where you are and and where your heart is that's way more important than whether the next person can even stay on key because you're singing so off key. I had a really good friend in college. I was the only one that could sing next to him. Because I don't know why, but I could stay on key. No way, even with somebody on key, could he keep, keep a tune. It was terrible. But when he worshipped, you knew where his heart was. He didn't care. And honestly, we didn't care either. Because it wasn't about me or him or his voice or my voice. It was about the place where we were at. So here is a habit that I want you to start today. I want you to sing in church out loud. (laughs) Now here, if you want some scientific reasons for this, not just spiritual and communal and, and relational, get this. Uh, there was a study, a global study done by the Swedish re- by some Swedish researchers. Well, that right there tells you that it was a good study. <clears throat> they concluded this: that the habit of group singing, not singing by yourself, the habit of group singing is good for your health. It is great therapy to sing with other people. It is good for your mental health, your emotional health. It's good for your social health. It's good for your physical health. In this extensive study, they discovered that singing with other people lowers your blood pressure, releases endorphins, which makes you feel good, improves your mood, 
builds your confidence, relieves the loneliness, releases negative emotions and stress, and creates positive emotions. Once, of course, you get past the thought that other people are hearing you sing, I suppose. So you got to practice. Another study published in a book called Imperfect Harmony, Finding Happiness in Singing with Others, showed that people who sing in worship each week live longer. And I want you to live longer. So we're going to do something good for your health. Good for your transformation. The worship team is going to come up, come on up. And we're going to close the service with a couple songs. It says the father celebrated when the son came back home to the father. They killed the fatted calf. There was a sacrifice made in honor of this son. My son, he has been found. He was lost, but he is found, so let the party begin. We're going to celebrate communion, communion, and we're going to sing. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24 say this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In a moment, the ushers are going to pass out a basket and it has little pieces of bread in it. And if, you're, if, if you say, you know what? I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. When that basket comes by, take a piece of bread. And then it says this in verse 25. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And they will also pass the tray with little bitty cups in it full of grape juice. The bread, Jesus said to his disciples, represented his body, which was broken for them. The cup, Jesus said at that last supper, he said, this represents the blood that is shed for you. And as we partake of this, we celebrate. This is a symbol that God gave us as a reminder of his goodness to us. In fact, Jesus said, I never want you to forget how much I love you, so I'm going to give you something to help you remember. It says in the scriptures that he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving before they celebrated communion. And that word thanksgiving in the Greek is the word eucharisto. It means for your mercy. It means thank you. Eucharist, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all the things that you've done. Thank you for saving us when we believe that you are the Messiah and that you literally went to the cross and died. Thank you. Thank you. We celebrate this morning. We love you and we thank you for this symbol. As Christ followers, we receive it with thanks. Eucharisto. Some, some churches call it the Holy Eucharist. We call it communion. I don't study words. I don't know why we use that and not the other. But this morning, as the ushers come and as you take the bread and the cup, celebrate, thank him. Thank him that maybe today Maybe today you've said already in your heart, I'm fed up and I own up. Lord, receive me back. And you feel his arms around you right now. Thank him for that. Celebrate that. And then when you're finished partaking of the bread and the cup, sing out 
loud these last couple songs. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eucharisto. We celebrate and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You spread out the skies over empty space said that there be light the dark